welcome to this episode of Equally Funny. I'm your host, Kate Rogan. Uh, This is a podcast where we take a topic related to social justice, break it down, give you some history, present day context, and then also some suggestions for where you can learn more, uh, hopefully make you laugh along the way. That's always the goal, like the big uh, pie in the sky dream. Uh, with me today is uh, Camille Caddenhead, or Cadenhead. I should have asked before I talked to you. I'm so sorry. No, no. Caddenhead has been, it's been pronounced that way so many times. It's kind of like the alternate pronunciation of my name. Okay. Okay. All right. So it's Cadenhead, though. Yeah, it's Cadenhead. <laughs> All right. Great. 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 Um, Okay. And so Camille, I want to tell the uh, listeners a little something about you. So I'm going to read this bio that you shared with me. And so Camille Cadenhead is an actor and writer in Chicago. She's worked with various theater companies throughout the greater Chicago area. And you have co-written shows performed at the Second City Training Center, The Annoyance and Newport Theater, as well as produced video sketches with your former team, uh, Free Trial Run. Camille will be back at new content later this year with Role Models, one of Trident Network's member video teams. And your training in theater and performances include uh, the Second City Conservatory, uh, IO, uh, TIER for IO uh, no longer being here, but we're excited to see what takes its place, um, and Black Box Acting. And you have a BA in playwriting from Columbia. And listeners, you can follow Camille on Instagram at Camamilly. Did I say that right? I love that little name. Is it Camamilly? Yes. yes. <laughs> that's adorable. It's Camamilly. That that's a that's a um a nickname that one of my best friends came up for me. Uh, mm-hmm. But she also calls me Camamil too. <laughs> okay. All right. Is it because of your very calming effect on people? No, I can't say that. That's what it is. <laughs> No, that's not that's not the no. origin story. I can't okay. say Okay. All right. Never mind. We won't ask. Camille, how are you doing this week? I've been doing good. Uh yeah. I just I just flew back in from Nashville, Tennessee from a bachelorette party for my cousin. I really want to go to Nashville again at some point. I haven't been actually I'm not actually technically sure that I've ever been to Nashville proper. Like I've been to Pigeon Forge, which is like close-ish to Nashville, I think, which is where Dollywood is. That's Dolly Parton's uh, theme park. I didn't go for Dollywood and I actually never made it to Dollywood. I went for like a dance competition when I was like 15. But I was, oh my God, I was hoping that Dollywood was on our itinerary because yeah. I did want to go there, but it wasn't. Oh no, we're gonna have to go back and do Dollywood. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I have no idea what's there. I'm like, is it just a like a shrine to Dolly Parton, or is it a theme park? Like, I have no idea. I would think that it's like part theme park, part like Dolly memorabilia and stuff like that, or All right. you know, a lot of mementos from her career. Oh, I could get down with some Dolly memorabilia. I'll spend some money there. Don't you worry, Dolly. We're going to support you because you need it. You clearly need the money um, from us. Uh, All right, Camille, let's get into our topic for the day. So today we are talking about code switching. And 
I think it's always helpful at the top to sort of set the stage and get aligned like the two of us, make sure we're on the same page when we uh, talk about code switching and then also make sure the audience is on the same page as us. And so in order to do that, we're gonna do a segment that I'm calling Let's Get Definitional. And it's essentially a pop quiz that we make co-hosts participate in um, to give to hone in on the definition of what code switching is. So there are gonna be three options. And Camille, I would like you to tell me which of the three options you think is the actual definition of code switching. Okay. So are you ready? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, great. You look ready. <laughs> which of the following three options do you think is the definition of code switching? Is it A, a vicious prank middle school girls play on each other when they switch up the ciphers used to decode their group text messages in order to make one member feel singled out and alone. So that's option A. Is code switching option B, a term that software engineers couples use with each other when out in public to signal that they've spotted another couple they are interested in swinging with? No, no judgment on my part. Um, or is code switching option three? Uh, option three, it's option C. I can't even read my own damn outline. Is it option C? A practice that involves adjusting one's style of speech, appearance, behavior, and expression in ways that will optimize the comfort of others in exchange for fair treatment, quality service, and employment opportunities. So which do you think it is, Camille? So I would say, can I pick all three? <laughs> no. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to go with C. Um, oh my gosh, one. you're right. You're so smart. That's what it is. <laughs> Although you, I feel like you. it could be any of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So it is, it's option C. And that is a definition that I pulled from, um, an HBR article, which I will link to in the show notes, but I think it's all, we're all on the same page now, definition out of the way. So what we're going to dive into next is a segment on the historical context of the term code switching and the practice. And Mm -hmm. I took this, I did some research and I found it fascinating. So buckle in for a history lesson, Camille, because you're coming along with me, whether you want to or not, sorry, you're already here. Um, All right. So Uh, Code switching was a term that was first used in the field of linguistics, actually, as a way to describe how multilingual folks switch back and forth between their native and adopted languages with ease, and how they often merge the two languages seamlessly. So, like, a common example in the U.S. context is Spanglish, right? Like, people sort of pull words and phrases and ways of speaking from both languages in order, and, like, move it into this one language seamlessly. And some observers can sometimes assume that people do this because they don't have like a full grasp of the second language, but linguists have noted that even folks who are highly fluent in both languages still switch and integrate different parts of speech into the way that they talk. And it's thought that it's more like the speakers are using all the linguistics to all the linguistic tools that they have access to in order to express themselves, which I thought was like a really interesting way of thinking about it, as opposed to like, um, being like some sort of like detriment or like indicator that people don't have a full grasp of the language. It's like, no, we're just using all the tools available to us to express ourselves, which I thought was interesting. Um, 
And while Spanglish and like multilingualism is one example of linguistic code switching, it also shows up in things like accents or like regional dialects. So again, like from like the US context, it's kind of like when somebody who say grew up in Georgia, they move to the Northern part of the US and eventually they drop their accent and their regional speech patterns. But when they go back to visit Georgia or talk to somebody from home on the phone, they sort of move fluidly back into regional accents and patterns of speech. And I was kind of thinking about this, like, in relation to my own experience. So like, I lived in England for a few years during my PhD. And I picked up an English accent while I was there. Would you would you like to hear it? Yes, no. I would. I would. Yeah, very much great. So. All right, here it is. It's like going to take me a little bit to shift into it. So give me a second. It's um, yeah. blimey. Oh, my bloody good Lord. <laughs> right? Like, that's yeah right spot on like i just have a really good ear and i pick it up right oh my god you grew up there you, mm -hmm. you were mm -hmm. born there that's what mm -hmm. it sounds like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh obviously i'm just kidding i didn't pick up an accent <laughs> but uh i did pick up and use some words and phrases like living there after three years that i no longer use like back in the states but sometimes i still use when talking to friends from from england so so it's so it's interesting um Okay, so those are a few examples of linguistic code switching. And um, the term sort of like started getting used in like the 1950s as like an academic term to describe this behavior. But like, obviously, people have been exhibiting this behavior ever since people started moving around and like learning second languages and having to talk to, to different folks. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's my scientific assessment um <laughs> they just they just started talking certain ways mm -hmm. like like inter interacting with people like i gotta yeah. talk i gotta talk this way around bill because mm -hmm. he's gonna think some type of way about me if i talk this other way that oh i usually God. talk everybody hates bill we all know him <laughs> we all hate him he's yeah he's yeah. super judgmental super mm -hmm. judgmental mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. bill um, okay, so that's like linguistic code switching, and uh, it's been used for years to describe this behavior. But in recent years, it's also expanded to describe how folks sort of adjust all sorts of behaviors, depending on context, uh, from adjusting the words people use, but also adjusting the pitch or the tone of their voice, the clothes they wear, how they style their hair, and like the food that they eat when around other people as examples. Um, code switching in this more sort of expansive context is really tied to impression management, which is essentially trying to control how people perceive you in social contexts. And I just want to call out, like, we all do impression management in one form or another, right, at, at, at certain points in our lives. But code switching, particularly for members of marginalized groups can require a heavier mental load that can be detrimental. And it's something that requires people to subsume parts of their identity in certain environments in order to make majority groups feel more comfortable. And it happens in a lot of different contexts, but has been discussed uh, recently a lot in terms of professional environments, schools, other public spaces, and for many communities, how folks have to interact with the police. 
And the actual act of code switching between these multiple forms of expression or sort of like multiple identities um, can be exhausting. And, and as I mentioned before, it can have like sort of a particular impact on um, marginalized uh, communities and people of color. So Camille, that's a bit of like history. Now I think we're going to pass it over to you and, and talk about uh, sort of present day impact. Uh, so is this still going on or is this a thing of the past we no longer have to worry about? Yeah, like, just like racism, we don't have to worry about this anymore. Great. Um, no. <laughs> Segment over. Thanks so yeah. much. Bye. <laughs> <We're done. laughs> no, um, so it's very much still a thing. Um, you know, uh, I just feel like Black people and people of color are getting a little tired of certain things and... You know, you have some people who won't allow you to simply ignore their existence just for being a certain way or talking a certain way or just for being who they are. Um, but, you know, you do have you do have people who are willing to play the game, you know, and it's not it's not any fault to them. You know, it it's a mode of survival. You know, that's what anybody out here is trying to do. They're trying to survive. And you have people who go into this 180 mode anytime they have to interact with the police. Mm. And, you know, it's funny because there, there are so many people in my life who have experienced certain things and I have been pulled over by the police. It was nothing, like, major. I didn't even get a ticket. Um, mm. But... I was pulled over for not stopping fully at a stop sign and how dare you no. <laughs> yeah <laughs> how dare i and my bad driving yeah i, I was pretty young I, I i don't even think i think i was like well i won't say that i was young young i got my license pretty late <laughs> okay. i was like 25 or something like that mm -hmm. so i wasn't that young but that i feels, was a young feels... driver i was young in the mind of driving gotcha. Yeah, you were early so, driver. Yeah, yeah, I was a baby driver. I wasn't mm -hmm. a baby person. I was a baby mm -hmm. driver. But um, so basically, I got pulled over. My voice, anytime I'm like super nervous, my voice goes up like eight octaves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I don't really realize it until after the interaction is over or until after, you know, my anxiety has like gone all the way down. But yeah, I was I was talking really high and I was in the car with my uh long-time long-term partner and my mom and we were all kind of nervous. We were all scared. This guy was, you know, a police officer, he was white and I did kind of not stop at the stop sign, so I felt like, well, he had <laughs> It's not like he's pulling me over for no reason. Like I already, I, I kind of knew why already before he even pulled me over, before he even turned on his lights. Mm -hmm. um, but in that moment, I wasn't sure what was going to happen because all of us were black. <laughs> even though I was in the driver's seat, I felt like he might try to, you know, make a thing about the other people in the car I wasn't sure we were eating in the car. I wasn't sure if he was going to make a thing about that. You know, mm. it was just all of these things that I was thinking. And I was like really genuinely 
scared and I didn't know why. Mm -hmm. Um, and ultimately he just said, you know, don't run the light. I don't run the stop sign again. This is a warning. You don't have any, you know, you don't have any marks on your license or whatever. So I'll just let it go. And so we just pulled off and it was okay. But as soon as he went away, everyone in the car laughed it off. And we were like <laughs> laughing, like with tears in our eyes. It was like really mm. funny. And I'm not going to say that this is like what black people always do. I don't want to lump black people into a group because, you know, this is how black people get turned into monoliths. Yeah. But um, I will say that black people do often <laughs> find the humor in situations where they were terrified or where they almost died or where they felt like they could have died and they didn't. Um, that sort of thing. And I do feel like we could make an Olympic sport out of surviving, mm -hmm. like, the stuff that we have to go through. Um, and, like, but maybe yeah. also, like, sort of, like, the tactics that are required to survive in, in this environment, right? And, like, learning code switching, even if you don't know what the term means, but it's something that, like, it's baked into how you operate in the world right and yeah and it's like oh yeah we could make an, an olympic sport out of like how people are forced to survive in this system that is inherently unequal oppressive and often dangerous for folks who deviate from whiteness too much right yeah and yeah thinking through all of these everyday sort of um, survival tactics that are, are necessary to be employed. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really hard sometimes because <laughs> like it, I, I like the way you put it, the deviation from whiteness, because that's exactly mm -hmm. what it is. It's like, that's what you're being punished for. The more you deviate from it, the more you're made to feel like, there's something wrong with you or there's something wrong there's something that needs to be fixed with you mm -hmm. or suppressed with you it's like you should you know society makes it clear that you should be shamed in some way shape or form the more mm -hmm. you deviate from whiteness mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that's really what it is at the end of the day i feel um yeah and yeah um, and, and code switching, you know, like you've already iterated with a lot of the points that you made, you know, it comes in various forms, you know, it's not just the way someone speaks, uh, it's the way someone wears their hair, um, and it's not just in corporate America, although it's prevalent there, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's happening everywhere, you know, kids, kids who are supposed to be, you know, you hear all of these complaints about how we shouldn't put too much pressure on kids at such a young age. We shouldn't sexualize them. We shouldn't put them in adult situations, but we're always sort of putting this responsibility on them or making them learn very early what they're not allowed to do. Like you can't come in braids mm -hmm. and you're nine years old. And it's just like, okay, <laughs> when you're a kid and you're just trying to go and learn <laughs> It really upsets me that kids are like suspended from school, 
you know, or reprimanded. Uh, you know, their education is affected just because they've got braids in their hair mm-hmm. and it's unfair or dreadlocks. You know, it's just, it's, I, I think it's a little unfair and. I definitely agree and think it's a little unfair. And, um, I hear that police siren in the background. I hope it's not for rolling through a stop sign. Again, you know, while yeah. you're doing this podcast. No, I, no it's not. <laughs> I'm actually in the car right now. No, yeah, no. It's, it's a I'm, lovely I'm background you have. Yeah. yeah. No, but I think it is interesting what you were saying about sort of like the impact on, on kids in particular, because like these policies, right. That are often, like dress code policies, right, that are that are written by schools are inherently biased, racist, suppressive for people of color or people who, again, deviate from whiteness, right, like the white standard in any way, shape or form. And they get punished for that in meaningful and tangible ways, right? Like this isn't just some like ethereal idea, right? That, that, that people are like feeling like they're, they're facing impacts. No, like real world impacts are happening. It impacts me specifically with the hair thing. And not to say that this doesn't affect black men also. Mm. Um, but a lot of the time it's a struggle, um, for black women to find, appropriate hairstyles especially when they are in corporate environments or you know environments that do not permit certain hairstyles um i mean quite frankly really the only acceptable way most of the time to where your hair is straightened Mm. um like you you just always have to have your hair pressed um most of the time i mean i do feel like it's getting a little better um but i still don't think that we're at the point where we need to be mm-hmm. like me pers- me personally i it, it, there's so many sort of there's intricacies to this because you know my hair pattern my hair type it's not straight but it's like what you would call 3C or, you know, 3B hair, Mm -hmm. like a loose curl pattern. And I could probably get away with my hair being like this in an office setting, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and people might even compliment me on the hair. Like, I I feel like I can wear this hair and not feel like I'm a sore thumb for anybody or, you know, like I'm sticking out. Um, But when you have, you know a coarser texture of hair as a black woman, especially if you're a darker skinned black woman, it's hard because you, you know, you, you can't wear your hair like this, especially not at work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unless of course, you know, you, you work in a service industry job or, you know, but even, even some retail jobs won't allow you to wear your hair uh, certain ways. Um, so it's it's really hard and it's just something that white people whether they want to acknowledge it or not don't have to think about they don't have to deal with it mm-hmm. you know and honestly some you know some people of other groups of color don't really have to think about that either they don't have to think about the hair aspect of it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know so 
I saw a meme. I can't remember who it was by, but it was um, somebody calling out this sort of like double standard of white people's hair versus um, versus uh, black people's hair. And it was like, somebody is trying to tell me that I can't wear my hair naturally or that I can't be professional looking with my hair the way it shows up naturally in the world. But Boris Johnson with this weird mop of hair on his head can be the prime minister of the United Kingdom and yeah. be considered professional. Like how is that even possible in the realm of possibilities? And it's because his whiteness, his privilege protects him from the impact of anything, right? Like it just, yeah. it's the standard of professionalism and, oh, he's just like a little kooky with his hair and isn't it great for his personality? You know what I mean? But yeah. the, the impacts are so unequal and real. And even if I feel like even if a place like technically allows, right, like natural hairstyles, that doesn't mean that they are um, that people feel included. Right. Or that they're able to show up with natural hairstyles, even yeah. if it's technically allowed, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, just to take it back to like, the manner of speaking in like the office workspace mm -hmm. um it's it's i mean i don't know what it was like back in the day i don't know um what it was like to work in an office back in the 80s you know back when oh so many shoulder pads but <laughs> yeah sorry, I, um shoulder but, pads stockings but I, I interrupted your very important point i'll shut up and now. bad hair but the the aspect of AAVE, which is African American uh, vernacular English, um, or Ebonics, as some people <laughs> have mm -hmm. called it in the past, um, it's just this manner of speaking for Black people um, that they usually use uh, around, you know, their close family, friends, you know, in the community. Me personally, I've always kind of struggled with the idea of sounding white. Um, mm -hmm. I don't feel like what I'm doing is code switching right now, the way I'm talking to you right now. This is just how I talk. Um, I might curse a little more around my friends. <laughs> and I might curse before this is over. <laughs> but Please feel free. Yeah. <laughs> but I... I don't feel like I'm talking in a way that I wouldn't normally speak um, mm -hmm. around my friends, but I have been accused of sounding white by, you know, my friends and family. Um, and sometimes I don't hear it from other people. Sometimes I do slip in, in and out of a different way of speaking. Um, like I might not pronounce every bit of, the words that I'm speaking, but I still don't feel like this is code switching for me. Um, this is just how I talk. And I do feel like there is a fine line between Black people who code switch and Black people who just talk a certain way that is different from how, you know, other Black people talk. Um, but I do feel like that that's not to say that code switching is not a real thing. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone everyone doesn't sound like me. 
And the thing that I feel like people need to understand is that simply because a Black person that you encounter doesn't sound like myself doesn't mean that they're any less intelligent than I. They're, they, they could be more intelligent than me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that's what people don't understand. They could know more shit than I do. Um, but that's the thing. Like, when you speak with AAVE, people tend to believe that the person is not intelligent or, you know, they're ghetto or, you know, any number of sort of stereotypes, hurtful stereotypes, um, just for talking in a different manner. Mm-hmm. is is how I feel mm-hmm. you know um and and I feel like again that like demonstrates the the real world impact and sort of like why people feel the necessity to code switch right it's again it's like people are being judged for speaking how they normally would speak and being judged as less intelligent or less professional or less whatever right and so it necessitates code switching in order to make majority groups feel more comfortable, right, with that person. And yeah. and and that is real world impact. And that causes uh that requires a mental shift. It requires emotional labor. It requires like all sorts of mental work that again, majority group members don't have to deal with on the daily, right? Like yeah. we just don't think about it. It's a privilege not to think about it. I've been around my friends who also speak like me and we don't alarm white people as much. Um, you know, I'm a white, I'm around white friends of mine who, you know, react to me in a way that I feel like they feel like a certain level of comfort with me. And then when they're around black people who, you know, speak a little bit differently or, you know, come from a certain area you know, they talk a certain way, they get a little defensive, you know, you can see it, even if they're, even if you're not thinking about it, the, you can see it in the body language. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just kind of, you turn into a slightly different person, you know, or you, you have a slightly different reaction, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and I don't know how you change that. I don't know how you do something about that other than to kind of take a step back and think about it if it means anything to you but that Mm -hmm. that's just the thing it has to mean something to you in order Mm -hmm. for it to be something to change yeah i feel like it's um kind of like a great transition into our next couple segments i i feel like we've covered so much around like present day impact with with code switching and We've talked a lot about some of our own personal experiences with it, but I feel like if we could move into our next segment, which is a little bit more about our personal experience with it, and then like advice for listeners who may be either are members of majority groups, right, who are looking to develop an awareness of code switching and develop an awareness of their own sort of uh, uh, biases that are inherently like, or pushed into them by, not inherent, but are pushed into them by our society. And then also potentially some advice for people who are struggling with the idea of code switching. Does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds okay. great. Um, and so I feel like 
for me, I can't remember the first time I actually encountered the term code switching, like if it actually came up in like my, my MA or my master's or my PhD, but I do remember interviewing a woman of color, a black woman for my research who described the behavior like down to a T, right? And talked about sort of the the mental work it took to move between these two identities and versions of herself in the office and out of the office. And kind of the the vigilance she described with regard to who got to see which versions of herself for fear of the real tangible costs to her professional prospects and reputation that could accompany any slip on her part, how she put it. Um, she was working in film and TV writing and like a lot of industries, it's an industry where professional opportunities are heavily tied to like your reputation and being quote unquote, like easy to work with. And so I think that like a lot of people of color, they, she, and like a lot of black women, she faces like a double, triple standard, right. To always be sort of like in control because there are real tangible consequences. If she quote unquote, like she said, slips up and, and let's, and doesn't have constant control over how she is managing her impression in the workplace which is feels like a lot of bullshit um for me um like i don't have much sort of like personal experience with needing to code switch um and except i do lose a little bit of like self-respect for myself when i um think about how many times i use the words uh leverage cross synergies and optimize in my daily life um, in uh, sort of like my corporate speak, I just lose a little bit of respect for myself every time I use those damn words. And I'm like, oof, you were slipping into jargon like it's your goddamn job. Um, <laughs> but I will say that like, in terms of impression management, um, like again, I don't feel the pressure to code switch because I still get to walk into most spaces and aside from gender, not feel the mental load of having to proactively manage the impression that I give folks. Right. And I can, it's a privilege to walk into spaces and assume that I will be accepted for who I am. Right. And just Mm -hmm. how I show up in the space. Um, so do you want to touch a little bit? I know that we've talked a lot about sort of like your own experience, but is there anything else that you wanted to touch on in terms of your own experience with code switching? Yeah. So I just wanted to mention, you know, I didn't really know what code switching was until I was around maybe 12 or 13. I was like in junior high school or about to go to high school. Um, and <laughs> It was the first experience because uh, I, it's like I said, the kid me um, didn't know, Mm. but I knew the term acting white for most of my life. So that was familiar with me, but the term code switching didn't come until later. But it was funny because I wasn't conscious of how I sounded to other people until, you know, because my cousin, she grew up with us in Chicago. She was in the city um, when we were kids and we spent a lot of time together. And she did sound like a different person um, when we were growing up. Mm -hmm. But then her mother got 
married um, and they moved to the suburbs. She moved to Bolingbroke and then later on Naperville. And so she went to school with a lot of, you know, white kids. And I, I haven't really spoken to my cousin about it, but I can only imagine that she probably <laughs> could tell me some experiences about what it was like to acclimate to that, <laughs> especially mm-hmm. initially, because it's like I said, she was like us, you know, she, you know, she, she sounded like a kid from the city mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and yeah. from the South side, she sounded like, you know, like us. Um, but when she came back to visit, we had seen her. She, she sounded entirely different. She sounded different to me. She sounded different to everybody, but for whatever reason, I liked the way she sounded. I don't know why, but I liked the way she sounded. And I was like, I want to sound like that. Mm. And I started imitating what I thought she sounded like. And then my brother later, like, I, I literally, I don't even think I was talking. I don't e- I say imitation because it wasn't how I, what my voice actually sounded like. It was an imitation of my cousin. And he called me out in the car that same day when I was like trying it out. <laughs> and he's like, "Why are you talking like a valley girl?" <laughs> he didn't. He didn't say. He didn't say that I was sounding white or that I was talking white. He said, "Why do you sound like you're a valley girl? Like you're some <laughs> some rich mm-hmm. California girl or something?" And then mm-hmm. I immediately stopped <laughs> talking like that. I immediately yeah. stopped talking like that and went right back to the way I, the way I was talking before. Um, but yeah, uh, I just bring that story up because I think it's kind of funny, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, especially mm-hmm. since we were kind of young, and it just sounds like <laughs> it was it it seemed like a very adult confrontation at the time <laughs> because I was a kid. <laughs> I felt like I felt like I was being exposed. Because we were in the car, so my our parents were there. Oh no! And I think I think I did hear my dad like chuckle a little bit <laughs> because he was probably thinking the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like I was totally embarrassed. I stopped talking like that immediately. <laughs> mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, I think I think it was just an early kind of. I won't say lesson because I don't know that I learned anything from it, (laughs) but I will say that it was like an interesting sort of experience as far as like, I guess my identity a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, It was just, it was an interesting experience. It was a funny experience. I feel like it informed a little bit of my humor even today. Um, (laughs) If Mm -hmm. only incrementally. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was an experience to say the least. (laughs) It's like I said, I felt, I felt exposed. I felt Mm -hmm. exposed because he was right. I was, (laughs) I was not talking like myself. (laughs) Like I I couldn't even argue. I was trying something on. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I was like, whatever, you know, I'm a kid. I don't know. (laughs) Like, I didn't know what to say at the time. But I was like, yeah. can I can I try on this shirt without being judged? <laughs> I just I don't know. <laughs> not with not with a sibling. No, no, you no. can't. Yeah. No, I can't, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, that's funny. Um and then 
do we want to move into like advice for listeners um, or sort of like helpful tips for folks? I think for me, um, I pulled a lot of these pieces of advice from Courtney McClooney's work, which I'll link articles to. And she also did a podcast, which I found really helpful. But um, and this is more directed towards folks uh, who are in majority groups. And she she talked about like respecting boundaries, like especially as a lot of us are still sort of working from home. And for folks who do have to code switch, a lot of times, like it was like, okay, I can go put my professional sort of like persona on and then take my professional persona on off when I come home. But now people are working from home and potentially feeling the pressure to assimilate to professional personas in their and code switch like while they're still in their home so like one of the things she talked about she was like just respect boundaries if people have their cameras off like don't call them out right like maybe they aren't ready to be seen by like everybody under under the sun right like just don't um you don't know what's going on in somebody's house and 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 it's important to 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 give people some space Um, next I think is like developing an awareness of and questioning how implicit bias shows up in your own life. And I'll include a a link or two in the show notes for where folks can, can learn more about how they can begin to develop an awareness of implicit bias. And like you were talking about with your friends who sort of like, uh, when they're talking to you, they sort of like seem normal, right? But then when those white friends encounter other black people who maybe speak in a different way, you can see that they kind of like turn, something happens, right? For them, like the way that they react to those people. And it's like- switch goes off. Yeah, it's like, get curious about that that process. Yeah. Um, And then like working to build and drive the building of inclusive environments where people can bring their complete selves without fear of suffering consequences way easier said than done but like a necessary part of the work i would say yeah and then i'll turn it over to uh to you for any advice so yeah i i checked out quite a few ted talks on the subject uh Mm -hmm. i think especially there there are three that i saw but like there was one that i just i just like (laughs) learning about the scientific nature of things that aren't exactly scientific or at least we don't think of it as scientific mm. um so there was a um a ted talk by john bow um he's like a linguistic uh a linguistic you know sort of professor or mm-hmm. teacher and he did a ted talk on why um English class is silencing students of color. Mm. Um, I think that was probably the most interesting um, one that I saw because he gets into like, like almost the etymology and the words and, and the things themselves. I find that interesting because I just, I find it interesting because the way certain people talk, like I just, I wonder why there's a certain manner of speech that's considered more professional while this other form of speech, while we understand it is considered not professional or is considered, you know, a a manner of speech in which we can judge a person or deem them as a little bit more unkempt or something in in some way. Mm. Um, So I just like the way that he broke it down in that way. 
because I, I think it's 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 very psychological. You know, we accept it as what it is because we want to fit in. But I, you know, I think we should ask ourselves the questions like, well, why do we feel this way, or why do we see it the way this is? You know, and I feel like he kind of broke it down uh, in order to understand that. Um, and then also last week tonight um, covered um, hair, black hair specifically, very recently. So I think mm-hmm. everyone should check out that episode. <laughs> there have been a couple of episodes since that one, but um, the the black hair episode is is fairly recent. And I think anyone who hasn't seen it should check it out because they do go through a lot of the things that I was kind of briefly talking about earlier about, you know, the kids who are getting suspended from school. Um, there was a kid who was literally humiliated. Honestly, it almost made the the ones who got suspended look like, you know, they were granted some sort of mercy. Mm-hmm. There was a kid who had to cut his dreadlocks off in front of everyone mm-hmm. before he competed in this wrestling match. So I just, I think that, you know, it's <laughs> suspension is still bad, but that's like that's just like literally dehumanizing in my cool. in my eyes. And it's a kid, cruel. you know. Yeah. It's it's really cruel. So I think everyone should definitely check out that episode. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you you said that uh what if we were going over the things that we kind of recommend to people to mm-hmm. get through code switching or to Yeah you know, the resources. I don't know if we were discussing that part. It's fine. Let's do okay. both. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I do want to go through um, my suggestions for anyone who has to code switch on a regular basis. Um, it's, it's sometimes hard to suggest this because not everyone has access to the same things. Hmm. Pe- people included. <laughs> um, but I would suggest that if you can, you should try to keep a group of, you know, black people that you trust, or at the very least people of color that you can hang out with and that you feel like you can genuinely be yourself around because you will need that. If you are in an environment where you have to constantly be something that you feel is entirely removed from who you are. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I really, while I'm talking about this, I only know it through reading and through learning about it. I don't feel like I'm even in a workspace. I don't feel like I've been in a workspace where I felt like I had to completely turn myself into, you know, contort myself into something entirely different. So I'm just saying this as a person who reads books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, so I, I can't speak from personal experience, but I do know just from being in a predominantly white college, um, from going to a predominantly white college, from being in improv, which is, is like 50-30, okay? It's not like whitewash, but it's like not, it's not 50-50, it's like 50-30. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, a lot of the opportunities do go to, you know, white performers, Um, you're going to need that group of black friends or POC friends that make you feel less crazy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) because you're going to feel like you're insane. Mm -hmm. You're going to have moments where people 
intentionally and unintentionally gaslight you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Who will try to make you feel like you're making a big deal out of nothing. Um, so you're going to need people who you trust enough, who have experienced what you have experienced to get through <laughs> the thing, um, if, whether it's a job, whether it's, you know, something that you're passionate about, like improv or like, you know, being an artist or whatever, um, so that you don't quit. You know, yeah. maybe, maybe if it's a job, you don't care. Maybe, maybe you want to leave that job. I don't know. <laughs> but, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but if you do care about that job or you do care about the thing that you're doing, but you're the only black person there, you got to have friends that understand what you're going through. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like I said, I know that everyone doesn't have access to the same resources, but, you know, if you are like literally in a sea of whiteness and you don't know how to get out, maybe, maybe you should kind of reevaluate things. Mm -hmm. If it, if it bothers you, if it doesn't bother you, fine, do whatever you want. But if it does, Mm -hmm. or if it's making you crazy, reevaluate. Um, and also look for role models, not necessarily friends, but like role models who are black or, you know, a person of color who are in positions that you aspire to rise to or to get to in your life, you know, try to find people who look like you or who seem to have the same experiences as you, who you look up to. And Mm -hmm. if they have books that they've published, read those books. If they have interviews that they've done, watch those interviews because more than likely they're going to talk about <laughs> what they did yeah. to get to where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, if you if you decide to publicize cultural differences, or you know, if you choose not to hide who it is that you are. Um, some non-black people are going to either not care, feel attacked, or are going to try to understand it better. Hmm. Um, The ones who want to understand it better or who reach out to you and try to understand, if they ask questions that offend you, (laughs) you can... You can choose either not to answer those questions. You can ask them to reframe the question or, you know, if they, if it, if it's earnest, if it seems earnest, and especially if they, if it's a case where they, they hear you and they don't do it again, that I think that that is something that you should um, consider you know, especially if you want to get people to understand your cultural differences better. But if you do ask someone to reframe a question or, you know, you let them know that it offended you and they, and they feel that as an attack or, you know, they feel like you're attacking them because they, that you've pointed out that they're, you know, not asking that question in the right way, then you can let it go. Then you mm-hmm. can move on and and say forget it. Yeah, like <laughs> you not know, worth my, not it's, my, not, it's not it's not it's not your job to try and coddle them while also trying to educate them. 
if they really <laughs> if they want to be educated they should be willing to not only ask the question but if they ask the question and they did you know it's not really being asked in the right way you should be willing to listen <laughs> to how you should reframe the question or you know maybe you shouldn't approach the question in that way but I'm going to answer this question for you so that you know for future reference so you don't mm -hmm. approach someone else in the same way. <laughs> but yeah, that that's that's called like feedback and should be taken as like a gift, right? Ex exactly. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. It, it's like I said, if you are in earnest trying to learn, then it won't offend you. It won't bother you. But um but it's also not the responsibility of someone to educate you. So if mm -hmm. if someone doesn't want to if someone doesn't want to answer the questions about certain things, they shouldn't have to answer those questions. Especially if they're not making it your business. <laughs> but mm -hmm. but even if they are, you know, not making their cultural differences a secret, even if they are not exactly in the proximity of whiteness to the degree that you feel they should be, but they also don't want to educate you, that is that is their right. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. that is their right. Mm -hmm. And you should ask someone who is comfortable answering your questions. Yeah. You or should like, respect that and just ask someone else. And do, do some Googling. Yeah. Like, do and, some and, and do some yeah. Googling. Yeah. 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 Um, well, Camille, I feel like that's all amazing advice. Thank you for sharing. And we've talked about some heavy shit today. We yeah. talked about lots of things, some heavy shit. Mm -hmm. And so as we do on every episode of this podcast. <laughs> but I do uh, want to say first, thank you for, for sharing all of your personal experience with the topic and, and for all of the amazing advice and work that you've done um, for this episode. And I like to close with a segment that we're, because we've talked about a lot of shit that matters, let's close with a segment I'm calling shit that legit doesn't matter, right? So we're just gonna, I'm just gonna pose a question and uh we'll each answer it and so i'm gonna ask you first like who in like the entire universe all of time whatever who do you want to uh have come over to your house on, let's let's say on a random thursday maybe tomorrow like and cook you dinner like who whose dinner do you want to eat who do you want to have over and like watch them cook you dinner and talk to them you know but yeah without hesitation robin fenty otherwise known as rihanna <laughs> what i didn't know that was her name shit okay I, tell me about why i really want to have dinner with her she doesn't even have to make the dinner we could go out we could go out and eat i don't care <laughs> like i know i already know that she has so many things to talk about and <laughs> Like the conversation would not stop with her. Like I already know, mm. I would probably feel lacking in my conversationalist skills because mm -hmm. I already know that she would have stories about socialites and billionaires. She's probably met freaking CEOs and CCOs of Exxon Mobil and shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like mm -hmm. even though she's like an artist and she sings and she dances and you know, she's a pop culture icon. She's just one of those people that I know she's interacting 
also with like intellectuals Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. you know people who are not considered pop culture icons i know she is (laughs) and she probably Uh has a million stories to tell about those interactions um that's one of the reasons why i want to talk to her the other reason that i would like to talk to her is because she just seems like the type of person like we were talking about code switching just now and i don't Mm -hmm. want to get sidetracked and go back into that but like (laughs) she she is like that person who is like she doesn't give a fuck about anybody what anybody thinks of her Mm -hmm. and she just she carries herself the way she wants to carry herself and people adore her for it like Mm -hmm. they totally admire her for it and she just and i'm not gonna say that that's just luck i think that she like she just masters the art of not giving a fuck while also because i do you hear that all the time you hear people say you shouldn't give a fuck like how to not give a fuck like there are books about how not to give a fuck about things but Mm -hmm. sometimes i have met people who really don't give a fuck and they're not really making that big an impact in life (laughs) like Uh they're kind uh of depressed they're kind of fucking sad all the time (laughs) one of those people is me (laughs) but i do actually care a lot (laughs) Uh Uh i do care a lot and rihanna she just doesn't care she doesn't care (laughs) but she's like a millionaire she's a millionaire Uh who doesn't care about like she literally she's like whatever mm-hmm. here's 50 million dollars <laughs> oh my god like, she would be amazing and i'm i i realize i'm making the connection now to fenty and her brand and <laughs> how amazingly successful she's been in all aspects of her life but yeah she definitely feels like somebody who was like i know who i am and that person is awesome and yeah she doesn't have to give a fuck about oh she would be great yeah Oh, and she probably she really good. She probably is funny too. She probably knows a bunch of fucking uh, mm-hmm. dirty jokes <laughs> <laughs> that no that I haven't heard. Like she's probably got dirty jokes that I haven't even heard. And I, I like, you know, do you think that she that she writes them herself because she's so magical, or do you think that she's just heard them and picked them up? She, she honestly, I I want to believe that she might have written at least one or two of them. But, like, yeah. a lot of them, she probably just got them from, like, it, it encounters with, like, the people yeah. that I'm talking about. Like, she probably uh-huh. got them from, like, either experience. Like, if she wrote it, she got it from, like, an experience. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. she probably mm-hmm. got, she she stole probably a dirty joke or two from other, you know, <laughs> high-profile people. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So, that, yeah. Oh, Rihanna would be amazing. I feel like I, I now have a new goal in life. I'm going to work towards this. I'm going to do some, I, mean, I don't know. I've never done a vision board, but I'll do a vision board for this, like for this particular meal. And I'll get back to you on any results that I get from trying to manifest something. You know what? Um, Can yeah. I just say this one thing? I t- yeah. I made a vision board. I did. Mm-hmm. It was hard because, you know, I I'm, <laughs> I try not to be, but I'm kind of a faithless person. Mm-hmm. and but I made a vision board and I ended up getting a new job after doing this vision board. I I got a new job that I liked better than my old job. Things were like 
things were looking up and I threw that vision board in the trash. <laughs> like I, I had to clean, I had to clean my space. I, I was like, I don't need this anymore. Uh huh. And I swear to God, Donald Trump became president. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm so fucking sorry, y'all. But I fucking did it to all of us. I am so sorry. I really oh, fucking am, dude. Your, your power is unbelievable. <laughs> I swear to God. Like, I, I was like, I don't have, I don't have any pool. Mm-hmm. I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, Camille. I did, well, I, I did it. I uh, did it. Well, aside from that vision board story and now me going down a rabbit hole thinking about what could have been, um, this has been lovely. Thank yeah. you so much for joining me on the podcast. Uh, we'll have to have you back sometime and talk about a different topic. How does okay. that sound? That sounds great. Okay. Well, thanks so much and have a good night. Talk All to right. you soon. You Equally Funny is produced by me, Kate Rogan, in collaboration with each episode's co-host. Our intro music is by Tim Durier, and our cover art is by Rachel Nevers. Episodes are edited and mixed by Area Code. If you're looking to get in touch, reach out to equallyfunnypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at equallyfunnypod. Equally Funny is a part of the Trident Network. To learn more about our videos, live shows, and other podcasts, please visit thetridentnetwork.com. Thank you.